Hey, this week I wanted to share a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Arvid Call on the Bootstrapped Founder podcast. I actually interviewed Arvid on this show back in May of 2022 for episode number 101. His podcast, The Bootstrapped Founder, is a weekly show about starting and bootstrapping businesses, how to build an audience, and how to build in public. Honestly, I was super impressed with Arvid as an interviewer, and that's not something that I say lightly. But one of the main reasons that I wanted to share this episode is that because Arvid and I know each other fairly well now, this episode came out very fun and very conversational. We talk about making a living as a creator, lessons that I've learned the hard way, how to choose great names for your projects, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy it. We'll get to that episode right after this. As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew, and it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I've felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Bootstrap Founder. Today, I'm talking to Jay Klaus, a creative entrepreneur and all-around amazing human being. We're talking about keeping it all together as a solo creator, what makes a personal brand work, and how important authenticity is in building an audience that respects you. Here's Jay. You're the kind of person, the kind of creator, that when I thought about it, I want to be when I grow up. That's kind of <laughs> how I oh, see Oh, really? You. Unpack that for me. Well, the the thing is, like, I've, ever since I followed you on Twitter, I've seen you doing a newsletter super well. I've seen you doing this podcast that you have extremely well. You have all these courses out that people seem to really enjoy. And you seem to still find time to be kind and friendly with other people on Twitter. Mm. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. It's quite mm-hmm. literally my goal. And you're like always a little bit ahead of me in terms of numbers and in terms of things that you do. So I've always been highly inspired by 
how and what you've done. So my my biggest question that I have is how do you keep this world that exists outside of us that is just constantly trying, trying to grab for our attention? How do you keep that out? How do you stay creative? Because that's the one big thing that I struggle with being my own media company, essentially. Mm, that's It's hard. I mean, like the reality is I work a lot. Um, I don't think I probably have the same amount of inbound noise as you do because you have... Uh, a following that's like a factor of you know four or five x of mine so if i just imagine my reality on social media four to five x yeah it'd be a lot i don't know how i would correct correctly create boundaries so sometimes i think about this because i'm like okay i do have monthly goals in terms of growth on social am i setting myself up for a reality that then i can't undo easily um and i don't know so otherwise you know i have what i call creative commitments that are just non-negotiable this is going to happen you know i'm going to publish a newsletter on sunday i'm going to publish a youtube video on monday night which becomes a podcast episode on tuesday morning and uh typically i'll i'll publish once to twice a day on twitter and linkedin and lately instagram so those are like the non-negotiable things that I just know those things are going to happen. Maybe they're not going to always be like amazing, but they're going to be pretty good and they're going to happen. And everything else kind of filters around that. Like you've probably seen that story of the the professor who had like a glass jar and he's like, I put a bunch of rocks in there. Is it full? And the student's like, yeah, it's full. And he's like, here's some smaller rocks and they still fit. Is it full now? Yeah. Well, here's some sand. Social media is like sand, you know, and the creative commitments are the rocks and the, the members of my membership community, the lab, those are like the stones. So there, there are things that I just weight more heavily. And until those things are taken care of, I can't even open my eyes and ears to this world outside of us because I'm too busy fulfilling the, the bigger obligations. Oh, wow. That sounds like you have a lot of discipline. Where, where can you buy that? Like, where, where <laughs> <did you get> <laughs> <laughs> now, how did you develop this? Because that, like, discipline is one of the hardest things in this attention seeking situation to, to maintain, right? Having consistency and, and staying on top of what you really need and setting those priorities. Did you always have that, or is it something that you developed throughout your journey? I think I did develop it. The thing that I've always had is um, kind of a selfish desire to be seen as really good at the things that I'm doing. I also have a fear of public failure. So those things have just always kind of been there innately, but I developed a love and respect for deadlines when I studied journalism in college, because like those are clear constraints. Like if you don't finish your story, then it can't go into the physical print paper that goes out tomorrow morning, there's going to be a hole in the paper. So if you, if you don't meet your deadlines, like basically you get fired and, and that taught me a lot of respect for, okay, well this deadline seems aggressive, but I have to do it because I committed to it. Even if it's not the best story I can do, like something has to be done. And when you, when you build a muscle with yourself and like trust in yourself that when you say, I set a deadline, that means I'm going to hit it because that's what I do. I hit deadlines that can be a really strong muscle. And I think anyone can develop that. I think what a lot of people have is they have these experiences where they set a deadline and then they don't hit it. And so now the actual relationship you have to yourself is, oh, deadlines are negotiable. Like I can, I can get myself out of doing this if I don't want to do it and that's okay. 
and I've just never had that relationship to it. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a pretty reasonable way of dealing with that. Like, honestly, <laughs> I, 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 you know what? Because if you have so much choice in in yeah. what you do, if you essentially you're beholden to nobody, yeah, that it, it takes some effort well, to convince yourself, right, to do it right. That's the other thing, though. Like when I make a commitment to my audience, even though that's like an amorphous entity made up of a bunch of different individuals, to me that is uh, a promise that I am afraid of reneging on. You know, like like I, I I'm not willing to fail on that because I've made that promise to other people, and I, I will constantly declare things to external parties because I know once I do that, now it's non-negotiable because I'm not willing to go back on that promise. Yeah, forcing yourself to do things that you're publicly committed to. It's kind of building in public almost with the intention of it being out there so you actually have to do it, right? And yeah. then you do it. I, I see this as an accountability scheme and I use it for myself as well. Like for my newsletter, my podcast, I know it has to be out at a particular date and even though nobody really would get upset, I, I think, right? I don't know. Like, I've never, I, I've never experienced anybody getting upset because I actually have met all the deadlines. But I would assume that if I don't hit a deadline, people wouldn't really complain to me about it. They would expect me to, you know, finish it up at, at some point. But I don't want to disappoint them. Is that the same for you? Is that like, is your your accountability yeah. disappointment based? Is that what it is? Yeah, totally. 100%. Okay. 100%. And also, like, I know the currency in this business is trust. And if I betray that trust, the next time somebody's making a decision, whether or not to trust me, usually with their money or their attention, they're going to think like, maybe I can't trust Jay. Like I want every decision where you decide to trust me to be rewarded with, and you get that thing that I said I'd give you. Yeah, not trust. Trust is such a central thing. I, I completely agree. Which is also funny because if you think, uh, back um, to the the kind of like sizes of audiences that we just talked about, like the the amount of people that might follow you. Like the more people you follow, the more people follow you. The kind of thinner the relationships get. Okay, and they kind of get sparse. That you kind of have less less of a intense relationship. Yeah. And trust is built on intense relationships. So an audience growth trajectory doesn't necessarily mean a trust growth trajectory. The one number is not exactly the other. Since you've been around for a, a, quite a while, building trust in communities and building trust like with your brand and with your products, what do you think is the, the most important action that, need, that you take to maintain that and to increase it? Whereas there are many ways of you know, getting followers without necessarily using trustworthy methods. What, what is a trust-based paradigm that you have for your work? I think that there's an implicit promise with all of my content that there'll be more of this next week. <laughs> like my, my, my frequency is weekly. Like I've published my newsletter every week for five years. I've published the podcast every week for two and a half years. So to me, like just showing up and continue to publish on the schedule that I've set, that is uh, a promise that I'm keeping every week and building trust because of it. Um, because people just see like when Jay says he's going to do this, like he, he does it. Um, I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest one. And it is, it's, it's also like really easy to lose trust because not only are people trusting that they're going to get a certain 
artifact from me on some basis. They're also trusting that I'm going to continue to show up as the person that I've shown myself to be. So every, every message I put out there, every way that I show up online is also reinforcing or uh, betraying that trust that they've made of, I understand who Jay is as a person or as a creator at least. And so just like showing up not only consistently, but in alignment and in integrity with the way that I've shown up over time is important too. Do you think that limits kind of the scope of what you can do, particularly the capacity of changing what you're doing over time? Maybe. I think it depends on how you approach change because like if you, if you build uh, an expectation that you are a tinkerer or an experimenter and you try different things like trying new things, then is also just part of my understanding of you where I think people, where I think people screw up is just like not owning that a change is happening and thinking that people won't notice or will like subtly go along with it. But like, if you're taking a right turn, just say, Hey guys, I'm taking a right turn. And in fact, let me tell you why I'm taking a right turn and own that. And then I don't think there's really a problem at all. You will see some people decide to like unsubscribe from that journey. You know, they're saying, well, that's, that's a turn I'm not making. Like I want to continue going straight or maybe I'd go left, but if you're going right, I'm not going over there and that's okay. But there will be people who continue to follow along, but I think you have to like call out and own these things and, and give people more credit for being intelligent, observant people, uh, then it's fine. Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, if you communicate that people have to expect the unexpected, then you can pretty much go wherever you want to go and people will still follow yeah. you along because they join you for that, right? They want you to surprise them. And I struggle with this too. Like, I don't think I forever want to be the, the creator who helps creators create, you know, like there's this, this meta, uh, aspect to what I do that uh, is working and is fun and is great and I love it and I'll continue to do it for the foreseeable future but I probably won't do it forever so if I don't do it forever what does that change look like I would prefer not to build from scratch so if I were to ever one day make some sort of right turn how would I own that with the relationship of people who like that thing to pull them off elsewhere does it become like a all in I'm going over here does it become a second thing that's starting over here and I'm inviting you to that journey. Uh, and if there is going to be a second thing, how closely aligned should it be to the first thing? Those are things that I do think about and are kind of scary when you spend so much time building equity behind a certain idea and a certain identity of yourself. And then thinking, well, maybe I want to reinvent myself at some point. Starting from scratch is a scary, not great thing because there's so many benefits to just like starting new projects within the umbrella that you've already built. you see like, oh, wow there's compounding benefits to this audience that I built over here because now I just started a quote unquote new thing, but it's, it's applicable to all these people and things get easy. You spend so much time where things are hard <laughs> and it's nice when things are not hard. Yeah. It's like when you, when you compound effects, I, th I think that's, that's the phrase, right? Like, and particularly in our little community on Twitter and in all the other places that we're in, like the creator economy, the creator community, the indie hacker community, there's uh, there's always this kind of thing looming 
over our heads, like this project is going to end at some point. Either you, you build a business and, you, and it gets acquired. Wonderful. Right. And now you get to do something else or you have this, this one project going and it kind of, you get bored of it and you go to something else. Like things don't last forever, particularly not in a creative field right? and entrepreneurship or design or just knowledge acquisition, like where, where things change all the time, you change. So what I've seen people most successfully doing, and that's why I think you are, you're such an inspiration as well, is no matter what you do, you become more valuable as a brand, like you, the person, you, the educator, you, the interested person, like the human being that does these things, not owner off, CEO off, like that is not the role. You are the person from whom sprang the idea off, like the, the source. I think that, that for many founders and for many creators, focusing on that personal brand, the, the being a human being for others to relate to is so much more valuable than being this, this person that does the project, like trying to embody a project or a particular business because they can go. You will always hopefully stay you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about that a lot too. And a lot of the people that are like in our, our membership, the lab that I'll talk to, they're like, well, should I build this behind my name or should I have like an entity name? And really that's like a personal decision and there's cases to be made either way. But the, the, the side of the fence I usually fall on is like, consider you as like a always in progress, uh, hub of all these things that you're doing. Like, try to have a home for you that reflects the current state of all of these things, but is not something that is housing the long-term equity of one particular thing, because you're always going to have you, like you're saying, you're always going to have you and there's always going to be value there. And you're always going to want to retain that. So that's part of the reason why basically all my projects, I build their own digital footprint for them, at least in terms of like a website. Um, because that creates an asset associated email list to it. I, I try to build assets in a way that they are, uh, saleable if, if necessary. And it's, it's like building something on your name is just not super saleable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not at all. Well, might, maybe, I mean, look at the whole Mr. Beast situation, right? Like that, that has been a big discussion that has, but that's Mr. Beast. Uh, that's not Jimmy Donaldson. Exactly. Well, so name might mean a lot of different things, right? Like a, a, yeah. a brand, uh, a pseudonym or something that is a name, but it does it, it just because it is related to a person doesn't mean it is the person. I mean, that's the whole yeah. the whole plot point really of the book Built to Sell. Right? It's it's a uh, it's John Morello spoke about making or building a sellable business. Like it starts with an agency owner who has an agency, wants to sell it, and figures out, whoops. I'm so important to my agency, can't sell the thing. And then the whole book kind of goes through the idea of how can you make the business less driven by you and more driven by process and by automation and that kind of stuff, which is a great book for any founder because I highly recommend it. Really helped me build a sellable business and then sell it. It was great. But the idea is that if you can remove yourself from, from the business or from the act of running the thing and still have the capacity to own it or to find some some kind of yeah some kind of money flowing back to you from it perfect right and that that is exactly that is that is how you should set things up and i love that about how how you're setting up your things right you have the the lab you have the 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 elements the podcast and you have the the, the newsletter as, as well like and all of these things are obviously connected but they look distinct and they are 
distinct. They feed each other, but they are essentially their own little thing. And and that's what inspires me because I kind of want to do the same. And I still have the problem that all of this for me is under one umbrella, I feel. And I, I wonder, like, should I diversify it out? Should I make it different? Or should I turn it into its own entities and hire people only for that one or the other thing? It's just so, there's so much to do. How can I, I think do of it? It's- I think if it's media properties where it's like podcast, newsletter, membership, like I actually wish all of those things were under the name creator science. Now the lab kind of is like that. that, You only get to that from the creator science domain, but like the podcast creative elements, there's no reason that that shouldn't be the creator science podcast other than that brand, like creative elements predates the brand of creator science and changing audio is difficult uh, more difficult than changing website stuff. So personally, like if it's, if it's all under one umbrella and we're talking about different, um, media properties that are all connected, I would try to keep them as similar as possible. Like to me, projects should be different names, but if they're media properties under one project, I would try to align them. Oh, I think you're nice. in a better spot than I am is the short answer. You think so? Isn't that hilarious? Like, isn't the kind of self-perception of our businesses, isn't that the funniest thing? Yeah, I I mean, that that is kind of how it naturally grew. And I I feel yours, your properties grew differently, but they also just grew into whatever you have now, right? It's just how it happened, right? You have the things that kind of connected slightly, and obviously you're the person behind them. So honestly, the, the name probably means less because it's always your face and it's always like your personal kind of branding associated with it. Well, here's the challenge that I find. And the reason I bring this up and while I'll show you, like you showed me the grass that you think is less green than mine. Let me show you why I think my green, my grass is less green. So whatever you're currently doing, you know, as an individual, as J Klaus, as Arvid call, you, you basically show up as like a public figure in all these different areas. And people will say, this is Arvid. He is the blank of blank. And in my situation, what often happens when I come on podcasts like this or something, it's like, this is Jay. He's the writer of Creator Science. He's also the host of Creative Elements. He also has a membership community called The Lab. And now you're just confusing people, even though like these are all really the same thing. But like it starts a conversation off on like a complicated, hard thing where people are like, there's no way he's doing all those things and they're all good. Like what actually matters here? Whereas if you could just say, this is Jay and he's the founder of Creator Science, Cool. Go down that rabbit hole. Find out what these different things are and figure out what is most interesting to you. But by being J of creator science, now that points all attention in one direction, which flows those different areas as opposed to like fragments from the the, the origin point and is really challenging to deal with. That's, that's my perspective of like the challenges I feel currently and why I would say alignment is something I covet <laughs> and screwed up. But like, you know, some projects are wildly distinct and you can't have them all under one umbrella. That That is a, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And it's a, an interesting point that you're making with things that should be the same being super hard to align after the fact. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. 
Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Let's talk about audio because I feel as our communication happening on this medium, it's something we should be talking about. Something you just said really made me think like the fact that you can't just retroactively change the name of your podcast because you would have to go through hundreds of episodes and do a hilarious like overdub, overdub. Every, every time you say the name or just have a yeah. robot voice hilariously mispronouncing yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. That, that is hard. And that also means that audio generally super hard to be to search, right? Can't index it really well, can search it really well, can be discovered easily. Like podcasts in particular still suffer from just being technically unwieldy, right? I can't, I can't control F and change the audio in all of my podcast episodes. Every episode starts with, hello, my friend, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. Sure, I could probably record like one soundbite of that and clip it in and put it in there. That would sound terrible. I'd start every episode off on a weird note. Every episode has unique artwork, which the title is plugged into. Um, there are all kinds of link links all over the web talking about Creative Elements, linking back to the website. So those links would be confusing or they would no longer link back to a website which has pretty good SEO value because of all those links. Uh, if I did put it under the Creator Science website and brand name, now I'm moving a ton of different like pages for each episode. So there's like so many complications to the point where it just doesn't make sense. But man, I love the brand Creator Science and that is in some ways even more accurate of a depiction of what goes on on the podcast. 
but it's it's just too complicated to unravel well if if i learned one thing is uh pick your good name first and then build the properties <laughs> around it <laughs> i know i think about this all the time actually and i haven't i haven't like made too much of a public stance on this but i think names are actually really important and the advice that you should give to beginners is like don't worry about it like you need to create and you need to learn who you are and your perspective on things and there's definitely truth to that too but if you don't struggle with like direction and consistency and showing up and making stuff there's actually so much magic in good names that have an emotional intuitive response that are suggestive of different product lines and expansion to ip that you can own from a trademark perspective like I wrote, I wrote this post, um, about the rebrand from what used to be called creative companion, my newsletter to creator science. And I did like this full breakdown on that rebrand and I got so much inbound because of it. Cause people were like, wow, this is really tactical and really smart. How you went about this. I wish I would have done that from the start and it's fun, but, um, it's, it's hard to tell somebody like, actually like you, name matters a lot. You should spend a lot of time thinking about this and not creating. Cause that's probably the opposite of what they should do, but there is so much magic in a good name. I, I would assume that your change of name happened because you found a better name for what you were already doing after the yeah. fact. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. So yep. could you have ever come up with this name if you hadn't done the thing you were doing? Good question. I don't know. Probably not. I mean, the reality is I've changed the name of my newsletter so many times like the creative companion brand only lasted for a year. And that happened because I was originally going to rename my newsletter. I was going to call it the infinite creator because I was really into the idea of infinite games. And then I Google, I have the whole brand done. I still have the whole visual brand for infinite creator. And then I Googled it and it's so synonymous with God that I was like, this will never work. Like it's so, <laughs> it's, it's so synonymous. <laughs> yeah well it's just it'd be so confusing and people be like what and i was like i can't do it so then i had like a branding agency that was already on retainer that I was paying i'm like okay this brand we just made like actually it's all dead and we have to restart we'll keep the colors and stuff but i got to come up with a new name and so i felt like i was on a clock and i had to come up with something quickly so there's some regret there because maybe i could have come up with this but yeah, I, I think there is a catch-22 of like, you have to have a pretty good sense of what you're trying to do for you to really find the right name. Ah, names are hard. Also, availability is hard, right? Like you, if, you, if you come oh, yeah. up with a good name, doesn't mean you can actually use it. Yep, yep. It's, it's, it's a huge challenge. Like the reason I moved from Creative Companion ultimately was I could never own the IP around it because the, the .com was owned. There was a trademark on it. It was a huge national organization so like i'm not gonna wrestle it from their cold dead fingers like it it was unusable to me and that's a challenging thing is a lot of people like start building equity on a name that they think is good and ostensibly could be good but is from an intellectual property standpoint unavailable or difficult to to build a path forward and it can be really important actually you know as your business grows like that those considerations become really important things that you think about a lot and you you've you got to learn that and <laughs> usually you learn it the hard way and a lot of times people are lucky and they're like yeah i mean i did a basic google search on this and i didn't see anybody else using this name and sometimes that's like enough uh sometimes it's not 
I do wonder sometimes like if I could have picked a shorter and more succinct name for my work, but I, I ran into the same issues. Like the things I came up with, like indie founder or something, they were pretty much taken. Like there were whole, like you said, organizations out there with that name, with registered trademarks, registered domains since like 2008, like that kind of stuff. You just, just can't fight that or you don't even want to. And now I wonder, now I, I just took whatever sounded good enough and was available. And I think it worked out for me until this point. If somebody starts today, and they want to come up with something that is impactful from the start and it's useful and it's available. Like, is that something they should spend a lot of time on? Or like, where is the balance between doing the thing you actually have to do to give meaningful, valuable things to people to build a brand on versus the name of the brand and all the effort that goes into that? What's, what would be your balance here? It's tough. There's not like a perfect answer, but I kind of, I would say it this way. Like, if you could spend an extra month on it today to then accrue all the benefit of that better name for the next six months and then not have the pain of trying to undo and rebrand that six months from now, it's worth spending that extra month today. And I know that kind of sucks and slows you down, but ultimately I think that's the fastest route. And people have a really hard time caring about anyone else but themselves so if you've already built an audience behind some name and you want to change it there is a long process of socializing that change even if it's coming from a different email address even if the colors are different even if the logo is different people won't understand that you've made a change until you socialize it many many times so it's just like so much better to not have to do it and if you feel like, yeah, I can come to the right answer with a little bit more time, it's worth doing. Um, but, you know, where is that balance? I, I think it depends. And, you know, there's also an argument to be made here that you don't have to not create while you're doing that process. Maybe you just aren't publishing yet. And another thing I wish I could go back and do differently with the, the YouTube channel specifically is spend more time creating before I start publishing so that I have more of a backlog to fall back on. Because most of the time with these creative commitments I've outlined to you, I'm creating that week for the thing that's going out that week. And it's high stress. Most people won't deal with that well and, and be as consistent as I have been. And it's hard for me too. So it's, it's, it's so good to have a content backlog. And there are other ways to do it. Like if you're publishing consistently, you could just say, okay, I'm going to make two podcast episodes this week and I'm going to make two episodes next week too. At the end of next week, you have, you know, two extra weeks of content now that is ready to go. But with the high production that I do on my work, it's really hard to get ahead in a week's basis while maintaining everything else that I'm doing. So all that to say, if you're going to spend extra time finding the right name, doesn't mean that you should let yourself off the hook for creating. You can also be creating some runway and a little bit of a backlog for yourself. I love that. Like runway and backlog are things that I regularly use like for my own work. I have a list of probably hundreds, if not thousands of topics at this point that I will never get through, which is awesome because I always will have something. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah. never, there's never going to be a week when I don't have a topic to think about. And I have found in doing these interviews now, which I've only been doing for at this point, I guess a couple months, the, the conversation itself 
generates at least 10 ideas oh my for whatever I might even be talking about this week, let alone in the future. Like building idea generation loops that end up as a little list of items that you might tackle in the future. The best way of creating a content backlog is to have an outline backlog and then filling it up whenever you can. And I use the same thing in preparation for when I have trips coming up or when I when I have a vacation coming up, right? I don't want to work for a couple of weeks. Well, let's just do two couple months before every week for two or three weeks. And all of a sudden I have a month's worth of whatever I'm doing that I could just splice in there and everybody's happy, right? I get to do what I want to do. People get to keep consuming the things that I put out there. I think that level of preparation is incredibly valuable for any kind of content that you create. Now, you create a lot of stuff. Like you have the podcast, you have the video, you have the newsletter, you have your gigantic Twitter presence, which I feel is extremely, yeah, for me, it feels like you're very present. And I mean this in the best and most empathetic of ways, right? You are on Twitter. When you talk to people, I feel that you're there. You're not just engaging for the sake of engaging. You're there having a conversation with a person. And that takes attention. And that means less attention for other things. Now, you've built this over the many, many years. I don't even want to ask for how many years you've been doing all of this, but I will. How many years <laughs> have it been? <laughs> really, since the beginning of 2017, in the beginning of 2017, I was working a job at a startup and uh, I realized that I had a limiting belief that I thought I was not creative. And so to combat that, I decided I'm going to write a blog post and publish it every day for a year. And that activity was the start of my email list that is still like the core of my business today the the podcast started two and a half years ago the current newsletter is really like in its current form like i guess two and a half years old because it like things started to shift in the direction of creators when the podcast started so in some ways it's been a long time and i'll look at other people who got started around 2017 and think damn they're farther ahead than i am and then I remember I haven't really found my direction other than like two and a half years ago. Like I've been creating, but it wasn't moving in the, the same direction. Um, it's hard. Com comparison traps are a very real thing. Like comparing your race to somebody else's is so hard to avoid doing. Uh, Cause it feels like I've been doing this forever, but like in the form that I'm doing it now, not really. I, I know the feeling though. It's it's I, I think we both have uh, similar internal mechanisms that it's, you know like the little lizard brain stuff the imposter syndrome and the comparison traps I think that's just the creator life like you you you're constantly exposed to and other people's content and I've noticed something like I've been watching movies I've been reading books and I've been listening to podcasts always through the lens of a consumer obviously but then now there's always this second layer of how is this produced. Yes. How, how is this oh, made? The best. And why? Right? It's it's yes. awesome, but it it also kind of cheapens the effect, and it then at some point it makes you wonder: Could I ever get to this point? Like it's I you can't it, turn though. it off, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, it's, it's great. I've never met somebody who has preempted me with this thought because I bring this thought up all the time. Is <laughs> I love media because I love to look at the production choices that were made. Like we'll be watching, we watched this shitty. Te television series called the oc have you heard of the oc yes <laughs> oh my gosh so we're watching the oc we're watching this cheesy scene and behind the actors in this set walks an extra actually the extra walked in front of the actors and i was like what and i rewound it and watched it i'm like 
This was a controlled set. This was a decision that somebody made. It added nothing to the scene. It actually detracted from it. Why did they do that? And my wife will just be like, can you hit play, please? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry for her, but I'm also happy for you. <laughs> what can I say? That's it's the that best. Yeah, but like it really it does make you a better creator because you can you can like watch somebody else's YouTube video and be like, "Oh damn, there's sound design here." Like, that's what I've been thinking about lately with the podcast. I'm like, "Man, this guy is putting so much work into like the sound design. The first 60 seconds of this video, I haven't even touched that yet." It really it's fun as an artist. Like that's that's the artist part of me which I love to indulge and I love it. I love it too, but it does like so the sound design thing. Earlier, I watched a thirty-minute video about Parmesan cheese. Just, just saying, <laughs> and it, it, was, it was highly instructive. And now I know what to <laughs> buy. Obviously, the, yeah, because it, it was a, a comparison video, right? They showed like oh, okay. different kinds okay. of cheese. The imported one from Italy, and obviously that's the best because of these chemical reasons. Like thirty minutes of cheese, I loved it. But you could see like that he used a, a different camera for his close-up shots than he used for the cheese. And he used a like a when he was blindfolded trying out Parmesan cheese. Like he was standing at a certain distance, and the light was there was like a key light here and a backlight here. Like you see these things, and you wonder. Ooh, will I ever be able to do this myself? Will I ever get to this level of quality? While all you should be thinking is, wow, that cheese yeah. looks interesting, right? It's, it makes yeah. the, the consumption of the actual theme and the, the knowledge in there kind of hard. And it, it, not that I'm, I'm not confident that I can get there. Like every little piece of equipment I get makes everything a little bit better. And I'm learning how to use this camera and I'm learning how to use the lights and stuff. It's, it's fine. But you see other people's other people's polished products, and you compare it to your own to your own work in progress, and that's just that's just soul destroying in many ways. Meanwhile, meanwhile, this cheese guy has spent like twenty years studying cheeses. He spent ten years as you know a documentarian. He went to film school. He isn't doing a newsletter. He isn't doing a podcast. <laughs> like you know, all yeah. of his attention is directed here. Yeah. These are the things that like I also have to remind myself of constantly. Is like these are different games. This person has chosen different trade-offs than I'm willing to make. Like one thing I've been doing lately, you, you'll probably appreciate this. Um, I will study people who have what I see as like aspirational creator businesses and creator lives. And I'll take a look at their left hand and be like, is this person married? And a lot of times like this person is still single, uh, maybe by choice, maybe, maybe perfectly happy with that, but I'm like, th th they're playing a different game. Like there are different constraints at play with the things that I've chosen are important to me, not just as a creator, but as a human that have an impact on the level of input that I can put into my creative business on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis that other people don't have. And it is psychotic to think that you can have the same results as somebody else who wants it as bad or more than you, who also has more time and resources to deploy into that problem. Of course, they're going to be doing things better. Uh, and I have to tell myself that every day. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's a, it's a priority thing, right? Like the, you choose what you prioritize and also you choose how, how much of an operation it turns out to be. Because when I, when you look at YouTube creators like Ali Abdal or other, just every, essentially every successful YouTuber, there's a team, there's some, some kind of team behind them at some point. And I'm not willing to have a team just yet. 
I feel like I enjoy the process of doing every single thing, even though I might 80, 20 it, like do a burrito of whatever. That is an enjoyable process because I get to learn all these things. And then at some later point, when I feel the need for it, I will get people to do these things that I already know how they should be done. And I give, can give them better instruction. I'm just not at that point just yet, but I'm comparing myself obviously to the outcome, which is one guy or girl sitting in front of a camera. Right? There's like an eight people team behind them and, and like holding weird boom mics and stuff. You don't get to see this and you don't get to see their priorities either. Like, are they, are they filming? Yeah, I was, I was watching, uh, I spend a lot of time on YouTube, uh, some documentary about German influencers and the kind of hardship that they sometimes go through, like doing 12 hour days of just filming video with each other so they can appear on each other's YouTube channels and create clicks and you know, sponsor impressions and all that stuff. Like these people, they were essentially suffering through a worse day of work than somebody in the factory doing hard labor because they were just sitting there like acting and editing and acting and editing obviously hard labor can come in many forms but you could see that the things they did in front of the camera did not reflect the reality of, of their mm. lives dude that's so true of so many people that's true of true of so many people like you just don't know what that reality is you don't know what their nightmares are the fires in their lives where they're completely failing and being self-conscious like you gotta you got like in a perfect world, you can find models, uh, people who are doing the exact same things you are, have the same priorities, the same levels of privilege and things. Like in reality, that's really hard to find. But often we are just comparing ourselves to absolutely the wrong models where we, we are only going to make ourselves unhappy because we don't have the same inputs <laughs> to get the same outcomes. And it's, it's like, it's horrendous, but it's, it's widespread. That's an, an authenticity problem too, right? People don't really share much of their authentic selves or have until now been highly encouraged not to share vulnerabilities and, you know, honest things about their lives. I think we've, we've, we've been seeing a change here in the building public movement and being just more relational in communities with other people. I also think we've seen this kind of shrinking of communities. Like look at the, the indie hacker or creator community. We know each other pretty well and we build long-term relationships where we kind of have to be honest with each other. You can't maintain such relationships in, in an infinite game sense if you want to keep maintaining the relationships, if that's the idea of the whole thing and be dishonest with each other. So you kind of have to be honest. And in that comes more trust and in that comes a more realistic appreciation of the real life that the other person is leading, which is why I always encourage people to just be honest in sharing their journey, not just the highlight reel, but everything, because that just makes it you more relatable as a founder or as a creator. And it also just allows other people to feel good about their own journeys. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and like the, the other thing is, there are a lot of people who are reaping a lot of rewards for not being authentic, <laughs> you mm. know? So it's like, oh, yeah. well, sure. it's tough because then, you know, the question is like, well, would I be more successful if I was less authentic? Uh, and there's a spectrum too, where it's like, could I be, could I lean a little bit more into the way these people are doing things? And then you start to negotiate with yourself. Like, well, even if I'm a little inauthentic, 
at least then like people find their way to me and I'm a better option than this person. Like these are, these are dark roads that you go down when you start like looking around and seeing who's being successful and why. Um, and ultimately you have to like decide, you know, your values and it's, to me, it's exhausting to be anything less than authentic because then it's like, you're performing, you're a performative version of yourself all day, every day. And that's not what I got into this for, but, um, you host a podcast long enough and you talk to people who are at the top of this game and you find some people you're like, Oh, this is, this is a mask. <laughs> like this is a version of you. And I had that completely wrong. And, uh, damn, sometimes that's a bummer, but it's, uh, it's a reality. Yeah, it's the Never Meet Your Heroes small edition, right? The kind of uh, community edition. <laughs> Sometimes. But then there, there are other people who completely surprise you, where like, they're even they're an even better version of themselves when you meet them. Like uh, Rishikesh Shirway, he's the host of Song Exploder, like my favorite podcast. And he has a Netflix documentary called Song Exploder also, which is like the best. Have you watched this yet, Arvid? I have not, no. Dude, please. You have you heard of Song Exploder, the podcast? Yes, I have. Yeah. Okay. I guarantee you, if you watch the Netflix series on it, you will lose it because this is exactly what we're talking about, like the production decisions. It's the best produced piece of media I've ever seen. Anyway, he he uh, he was even more incredible when I interviewed him for the podcast. Like he was the most generous guest. He was totally there. He was exactly himself. He was an open book. Like we we got on the call and there was like a. a presumed rapport that he initiated with me which was just like such a gift and so there are some people sometimes you meet your heroes and you're like damn you're even more my hero now <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's nicest reframe of never meet your heroes that i've ever heard <laughs> it's awesome it's really nice and and that's kind of that that's the that report that you're talking about that comes from somewhere, right? That is that's yeah. your activity in the community. That's your contribution to the community that builds that for you, even without having an actual interaction with the person. I wanna I wanted to talk to you about this because I feel like you've been doing this long enough to understand the mechanics of building community and building relationships with people. And most people struggle with like what are like the core things that I need to get right? Because you can, you know, depending on the niche you're in, depending on the platform you're on and the communities that already exist, can do a lot of things to, you know, build relationships. But I, I, I have the sense that you have understood a couple things very clearly on how to approach like building an audience, a, a group of relationships with people that like flourishes into a community what are these for you what, what have you and found this, this is very top of mind right now because as i was telling you like i've been building this into a course and it became like this huge course and even the things that i thought i knew I, I when faced with teaching it you have to teach it in a way that makes sense so you have to like crystallize it even more so this is very top of mind for me right now um what i have found is that the first step is setting appropriate expectations like when people come into your world, whether it's a membership community or whether they're following you on Twitter, they made a choice to tune in because of some expectation that you set or some ex expectation that was set for you. And you're best served if you know what that expectation is because then you know how to like succeed with that person. And if you don't set the expectation and they make their own assumption, you have no way of knowing like, am I fulfilling what you wanted me to do or not. So it behooves you to actively set your own expectations up front so you know how to succeed. And then, uh, like in a community, I would call that your purpose. Then when you get people in there, you need to you know, show them 
how to achieve the results that you're promising to help them achieve. And the shorter you can make that distance, the easier you can make it, the more reliably that they can get that outcome, the better off they will be. But a lot of times it comes down to what I would call modeling, which is you show the behavior that you want other people to take. When you see people take that behavior, you reward it. It's not different than training our dogs, unfortunately, but like you reward that behavior and say, yes, this is okay. And in fact, it is correct. That will encourage more behavior in that way. And conversely, if you see bad behavior, you have to call it out immediately because if you don't, then you're sending the the signal that this is okay also, uh, which can degrade the culture of a community of relationships. So you have to be on the lookout for people who are following the correct behavior, recognize it privately and publicly that will create more good behavior that ripples outward. And when there's bad behavior, you have to shut it down immediately. Wow. That does sound a lot, a lot like parenting to me. Kind of, Probably know? is. Like, I mean, like at the end of the day, like you want, you're trying to get some result and you want to, you want to exercise whatever level of control you can over that while still granting agency within that and parenting, helping people achieve a result, training a dog. Like it's probably all the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's training sentient beings to do things that are good for them and good for you. It's kind of, mm-hmm. just generalize it in, yes. uh, in an abstract way. Okay. That, yeah. That's, that is, that is, that is great advice. I feel like particularly the modeling part that resonates with me a lot because I, I try to be as like empowering as I can like to celebrate as many people as possible because I want other people to do the exact same thing. Like, I want the people around me to celebrate other people and I want to help the people so they can help other people. It's kind of this rippling effect, this, this meta idea that what I do to others, they should do for and onto the others around them. And then we can all live in like a more interesting place, like a more supportive and enjoyable community. The one thing I'll say about the way I show up on social media that I'm currently try to evaluate is if it's correct or not. Um, Typically, if I see behavior that is not harmful to other people besides myself, like if I see a troll who's just like, you suck, I will typically just ignore that. Because to me, like any form of attention is a reward that encourages that type of thing. And typically what I see is if you just ignore the trolls, ignore the haters, they just go away because it's boring. They didn't get any, anything out of that interaction that they wanted. But I'm trying to understand where that line is with um, calling out bad behavior and standing for good behavior. Um, because there's a lot of places where like, I just see people get into firefights that are going to go nowhere because all this person wanted to do was engage in a firefight. So it's it's tough for me to understand where that line is because most of the time I'm like, if it's... If it's a fire that I don't want to burn anymore, I'm going to rob it of oxygen. Um, but as a person of privilege, I'm trying to understand <laughs> where that line is a little bit more. I had a very similar experience earlier today, funny enough. Like I uh, had, yeah, I was, was essentially browsing Twitter as I am. And one of my friends had a business success that they shared. And somebody commented like among 40 different replies or couple less maybe but lots of replies there was one negative one and the only reply that i actually felt compelled to reply to was that one Mm. because it was wrong right there was there was something like a a judgment of character that i knew to be false then i thought yeah just like you 
if I give in to this and if I actually reply that the only thing in this whole thread of powerful, positive emotion is the one thing that saps it of that power. Right? It's the one thing that is negative that brings it down. Also, alg- algorithmically, Twitter now thinks that this is the thing they should show people. Right. right? Which is a whole other problem. That the engagement is the measurement of the quality of the interaction. So I'm very much with you. I chose to block the person which I think sends a signal through a different channel that is not conversation-related. But this is generally a big problem, is to, to not call out for fear of it getting more attention. I think that's, that's a problem mostly that the platforms have not solved, at least not well enough. Like a downvote button would be a solution to this. Or the idea of being able to kind of infer the quality of a post without having to actually engage with it in a, in, a, in a sense of, you know, user engagement. But that, I guess that's a technicality. But I feel the same way. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. Didn't Twitter have a downvote recently? I feel like I haven't actually seen that in my app for a while. Did they yeah, get rid of it? I, I don't see it either anymore. What I, what I do see is that I now can edit my tweets, which is, uh, very, has been useful twice. So there you go. <laughs> greatest feature that anybody ever wanted. It's been useful twice in two weeks for me. Great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's these little things. And I, I love the fact that they did experiment with it on Twitter, that there was a downward situation. And it's the same on YouTube, right? There is a downward. It's just not shown. It's just kind of an internal metric that they use, which is also interesting because, you know, <laughs> if, no matter if you like it or not, like all of these systems can be exploited in some capacity, and uh, yeah, we, we all struggle with that. Interesting. I, I I would not have thought that this is the thing you you were thinking about. I thought you you were like maybe thinking about a much much deeper approach. But that that particular feature or that particular way of engaging with people. Interesting that you think about that. Very yeah. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm always thinking about this type of thing. Like, I mean, it's it's been like a two year journey now of like trying to reckon with my own privilege in ways because like the things you and I get to worry about are different than other people. Like the same process we were talking about of looking at other creators and saying like, will I ever get there? There are other people who are looking at our stuff that are wanting the same things because we also start from a, a different place of privilege, um, both like racially and from like a gender perspective, but also like you had this life changing exit. I've had, more modest exits but like exits nonetheless so like there there are things that we can do that other people can't do um and i try to be cognizant of that especially in the content that i create to help other people because it'd be very easy for me to write an article to say here's how to pre-sell your course put up a sales page and send it to your audience and not think about all the people who don't have an audience you know That's like right. there, there there are you have, to, you have to bring things back down to people's level to equal a playing field where you can do you, do you think like building an audience is something that every creator should be doing or is there an option for people to not go through this gauntlet? If you are a creator, yes. I don't think it's something that every person should be doing, but if you've said like, I'm going to do this creator thing, then I think yes, because it just gives you so much optionality. And in a lot of ways, it's almost like an insurance policy on what you want to do. Um, I've been thinking more and more about, how can I ensure that my efforts today have compounding durable value? Because a lot of our efforts are like, 
put out a thread and there's like some ways to mine some additional value out of that but like it's not super long term and i want like more of my effort to go into things that are more enduring and um i think an audience is one of those things yeah it's an amplifier for sure i get it allows you to to reach more people obviously but it also kind of gives you the things you do a memory or a place in somebody else's memory one of the most uh impactful and gratitude inducing things in my life is seeing somebody when i have a chat with them having a hard copy of my book somewhere in the mm. house like that is one of the most mind-blowing things for a writer crazy is to see your work in somebody else's bookshelf like doesn't yes. matter how many sales you get two two books one book it's enough seeing somebody else having a physical manifestation of your thoughts that that alone like made my whole year at that point and i feel that that's what an audience does right an audience kind of gives you the opportunity to spread the things that you know and you want to share with other people yeah. because they can amplify they can carry it around for you and obviously the things you do to build an audience create this long tail of content like kind of traces of your ambition traces of your knowledge for other people to find and then kind of lead all the way back to you where you are right now and see what you have going on today which is the whole personal brand angle that we've been talking about so let's let's close this up with the the world's best transition to the question of where can people find you to <laughs> include you in their audience and to be part of yours Probably Twitter is the best place. You can find me at Jay Klaus on Twitter. I'm on pretty much every platform. Um, if you're a podcast listener, check out Creative Elements. And if you're a newsletter reader, go to creatorscience.com. These are all wonderful names. Distinct, but wonderful. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on today. Jay. Yeah, really thanks for having sweet. me. I appreciate it. And that's it for today. Thank you for joining me on The Bootstrap Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my book, Zero to Sold, and The Embedded Entrepreneur Twitter course. Find your following there as well. If you want to support me and The Bootstrap Founder, please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Add the podcast to your podcast player of choice. Leave a rating and the review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder any of this will really, really help the show. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.